Let's turn to our Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter number 21. Matthew chapter 21. I want to thank the Lord for a good day in the house of the Lord. Amen. And uh, what a blessing it is to get to be in this place. I tell you, we ought never take it for granted. It wasn't too long ago the churches was wondering whether they'd be having church. Amen. And uh, we ought not take for granted the opportunity to come into the house of God. What a blessing it is. I've already been encouraged, even already in being here. And I trust the Lord will continue that work. Matthew chapter number 21. And uh, I'd like to read just three short verses tonight out of Matthew chapter 21. Preach to you for a little while out of this portion of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 21, verse number 12. Notice it with me this evening. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. And overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. I pray to take the word of God, deliver it deftly to our souls. Lord, I pray uh, that you would take the word of God and apply it in exactly the way it needs to be applied in our hearts and minds. And I pray that you'd help us to respond in obedience. Lord, I, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for a church like Walridge, Lord, a place we can come and worship, a place where the preaching is easy and the singing is good, and Lord, that Christ is lifted up. And I, I just thank you for what you've done in this place. Let me never take for granted what a blessing it is to pastor here and to love and to know these people. And I pray that you'd use your word tonight in our hearts and minds and may Christ be glorified and magnified. We ask all this in his precious name. Amen. Matthew chapter number 21 records for us the second cleansing of the temple that our Lord performed. There are two times in his earthly ministry when our Lord did this. The first is recorded only in the Gospel of John. Uh, and we're told that early at the beginning of our Lord's ministry that he went in in a very similar fashion. He found a marketplace where it should have been a holy place and he began to cleanse the temple and to drive out those that were not there for communion. They was just there for commerce. Amen. They weren't there to, uh, to worship. They were just there to earn something. And so he drives them out of that place. Well, once again, at the close of our Lord's earthly ministry, in fact, will not be very long and he'll be hanging on Calvary's cross. But before he does, he spends about a week teaching in the temple. Before he begins that work, he goes in and, and once again cleanses the temple. I've read this passage many times. I'm sure you've read it as many times as I have. And I've often wondered to myself, you know, what significance does this passage have to us? Now, certainly there's a lot of churches that uh, could do with a good sermon on cleansing out the temple. Amen. Places where the house of God has been relegated to being nothing but a spectator sport, uh, a means of, of marketing and, and uh, making merchandise of the people of God. I like to believe that our church is not a place like that. I, I, and, and I tell you this, we don't make enough money to be in it for the money. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, so I, I feel like I'm on pretty good ground when I say that. And so, you know, when I come to this chapter, I, I've often thought to myself, you know, what does this hold for you and I as the child of God? And then it, I was reminded that, you know, the Word of God has much to say about the temple of God. We could ask this question, what is the significance of this passage to us. And I think if we scan through the New Testament, we will find the answer for that. Did you know that on three separate occasions in the New Testament, that you as a born again, Holy Ghost indwelt child of God, that you in fact are called the temple of God. 
three different occasions. And all of them come from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And interestingly enough, all of them are being written to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says this, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. Now that's about as plain as you can get it. Ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Then he says this, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So we learn first off that as the child of God, as a born-again believer, that we are God's holy habitation. He has taken up residence in our heart and our life and in our body, and He dwells within us. And we are given this caution and this warning that when we, through sin and disobedience, defile the temple of God. Hey, God's not going to tolerate that any more today than He tolerated it in the day of Christ, than He tolerated it in the day of Israel's idolatry before He brought in the foreign invaders to destroy the Old Testament temple. Hey, it upset Christ when the temple was defiled then. Don't you imagine it still upsets Him when our temple is defiled today. So we learn that we are His holy habitation. Then Paul will go on in chapter number 6 of that same book, 1 Corinthians, to say this in verse 19, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? Listen to what he says. Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we learn first that we are His holy habitation. But number two, we learn that we are His purchased possession. I love the way the Lord Jesus describes the temple when uh, He quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He says, my house. It is God's house. And I remind you, when you got born again, this, it became God's house. It's not your own anymore. That's what Paul says. And I know there's a great many folks will often say, well, it's my life. Uh, It's my choices. It's it's my decisions. I have autonomy. I, I have authority in my life. Listen, if you got born again, you gave all that up. Uh, you was lost, broken on your way to hell. What nothing worth you uh, about you worth keeping. What nothing about you worth shooting. But Jesus died on the cross for you, and He paid the price for you. He, what do you think redeemed means? Amen. It means to buy something, to purchase something. He redeemed you, and now He owns you. You belong to Him. We're His purchased possession, and that's Paul's emphasis there in chapter six. Uh, for the for the child of God that would say, well, I'm my own person. I'll do what I want. I don't have to do what the Word of God says or what the will of God instructs me to do. I'm sorry. You can say that. One of these days you're going to be woefully disabused of that notion. Whether you like this or not, when you got born again, you don't belong to you anymore. You got bought out. He, he owns you, title and deed and all. You are His. So we are His purchased possession. And then when he writes a second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul says this in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, verse 16. He's talking about holiness in our life, and he's talking about how it it does not make sense that light should dwell with darkness, that unrighteousness should dwell with, with righteousness. And he says this in verse 16. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here's what Paul's emphasizing. It don't make sense that you take the temple of God dedicated and consecrated for the worship and service of God Almighty in heaven and fill it full of idols. He's talking about our life and personal separation. I believe in personal separation. I believe in ecclesiastical separation. I believe in personal separation. 
I believe in culinary separation. Don't bring me that unsweet tea. Amen? And don't bring me no half and half. Amen? There ain't no such thing as half and half sweet, unsweet tea. That's just bad tea. Somebody say amen to that. I believe in separation. I believe it's biblical. And I don't believe in isolation. I don't believe in self-exaltation. But I do believe in biblical separation. That's what Paul's dealing with. And he's saying, you know, that's appropriate. After all, how's God going to live inside your life and live and sit and dwell right alongside all of the idols that you've set up? You know what he's driving at here? That we are not only His holy habitation and His purchased possession, but we are His constant companion. It's His house. He indwells us. He desires. I love the way that Paul says it. God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. God says, my desire is not to have a distant relationship with my people. In fact, let me tell you how close God wants to be with you. He has taken up residence in your life. That's how close God wants to be with you. He doesn't want you as a distant worshiper showing up twice a year uh, to offer the paltry offerings of, of religion and ceremony and formality. No, He desires to be close to your life. And He desires it so much that He indwells us. So when we stop and consider this biblical principle that a, a born-again, regenerate, saved, indwelt by the Holy Ghost believer is the temple of God, we go back to these three verses in Matthew 21. What can we learn about Christ's desire for our life? Well, I would say just very simply before I even preach it, He wants us to have a clean life. He wants it so much so that He will drive the uncleanness out of our life if we'll permit Him to do so. I want you to notice three simple thoughts tonight, and then we'll be done. Notice first off with me, verse 13. I know that's the middle verse, but I want you to notice what the Lord says there. He said to these people, it is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Here we have the corrupting of the temple. The Lord Jesus gives His plain stated reason for why He's doing what He's doing. And we could summarize it very simply as Him saying, Hey, God didn't design this place for this reason. Do you know that God has saved you for a purpose and for a reason? And I would wonder this question tonight. More than that, I would wonder if you would wonder this question tonight. Am I living according to the purposes of God? Is my life carrying out the purposes of God. Think with me, number one, about the design of the temple. Now, I don't mean to go through how tall the pillars were and how all the measurements of the court were. What I mean by that is what did God have in mind when He constructed the Old Testament temple? Was it merely to be a monument to His glory? No, that wasn't alone what it was supposed to be. Was it merely to be a place where people exercised spiritual religious exercises? No, although, of course, people came and worshipped there. But the Bible tells us here, what God had in mind when He gave a temple and when He permitted Solomon to build it in the Old Testament, this is what He wanted. Notice three things here. Number one, notice what He calls it. He says, My house shall be called the house of prayer. Let me say, number one, it was to be a place where God is welcome. He says, That's my house. Now, I don't know about you, but there's no place in the world I feel more welcome than my house. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, and I, and I think you'll understand what I mean, and I hope this, I don't think it will. I think my parents will understand what I mean when I say this. I hope it don't hurt their feelings, but I, after I got married, and after I, particularly after we bought a house that was bigger than a box of, uh, of Cracker Jacks, we started to make a life for ourselves. Uh, we started to feel like where we're at is our home. 
I can still go home and, and, and to, to the place I grew up, same house that I grew up in. I can still go to the bedroom where I was, uh, where I, I grew up, my bedroom. Where I, and I thought, really, I thought they'd be like a lot of them parents. I thought they'd just make it a shrine to me. The moment I was gone, son, they burned everything I had and put two lazy boys and a big old TV in there. But I can still go. In fact, usually when I go visit them, the very place where I'll sit in that big leather lazy boy is where my bed used to sit in that place. And I can still go there. And, and I feel comfortable. Don't misunderstand me. I, I don't. I never feel like I have to stand on formality. But it ain't home anymore. Now home is where my wife and my boys are. Now home is that place that I go to. And you'd feel the same way. And they'd feel the same way. I hope they feel welcome at my house. But it's not home. Home is where it's yours. What about the house of God? He says, that's my house. It's the place where I am welcome. It is the place where he He is not a, a welcome guest. He is the host that welcomes. And listen, let me just make a short comment about the local church. And I know we ain't preaching in this in this vein tonight, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, you say, preacher, what ought a church to be? It ought to be a place where God is welcome. It's his house, man. It don't belong to me. It don't belong to you. It don't belong to the deacons. It don't belong to the trustees. It sure enough don't belong to the bank. It belongs to God. It's his house. That's the New Testament model. What about your life? Is your life a place where God is welcome? I wonder if there's some areas, maybe there's some rooms in your life that you've locked because you don't want him open the door seeing what's behind there. Maybe some areas where you've took your mess and instead of dealing with it, you've just swept it to the side and, and put some things in front of it and tried to conceal it and tried to not face it and not deal with it. Hey, i got news for you. God already knows. You might as well just go ahead and be honest with Him about it and make your life a place where God is welcome. Maybe there's some areas of your life where you're unwilling to yield to God. He's dealt with you about something. He's shown you that it's wrong, but it's got its claws deep in you and you're just unwilling to give it up. And you'd say, if we were walking through a physical house and you were walking, giving God a tour of your home, you'd pull that door closed and say, I'm sorry, God, that's off limits. You cannot have what's in that room of my life. I'd say this, if our life's what it ought to be, it'll be a place where God is welcome. Not only that, number two, he says this, my house should be called what? The house of prayer. I'd say this, it's a place where God is worshipped. That was his desire for the temple, his design for it in the Old Testament. Not that people just come and, and engage in, in, in a spectator relationship with religion, but a place where men come and bear their hearts to the Lord and pour their hearts out to God. A place where they carried out the, the, the uh, desires of their heart in seeking after God. A place where real, genuine, biblical worship takes place. And I wonder if in our lives, if we're worshiping the Lord. I wonder if our life is a place where God can look and be rightly pleased with the way that we worship Him. You know, one of the great criticisms that the Lord Jesus had of the temple worship of His day was how it had devolved and, and denigrated into just rank hypocrisy. It's not that there were not some religious things that were biblically sanctioned taking place at that time, but it was all outward show and outward appearances. That becomes apparent in the way that they treated the Lord. You understand when it talks about the Pharisees, when it talks about the Sadducees, when it talks about the Sanhedrin, it's talking about the religious crowd. They're the ones that persecuted the Lord Jesus. They're the ones that hated the Lord Jesus. You're telling me, hey, listen, they wanted to drive him from this place. And in fact, there were times that they did, and yet it was his house. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. They may have had an outward form of worship, but it didn't resonate with a true, sincere heart. So their worship was null and void. I wonder in our life, 
if our worship, if our, if our religious expression of our love and devotion to Him, I wonder if it is in line with the, the inward, sincere, and secret places of our heart. He said, I want it to be a house of prayer. And then I like that word prayer. He says, not just a house. I want it to be a house of prayer. Not just a house of sacrifice. Not just a house of, of worship. Not just a house of service. He said, I want it to be a house of prayer. I want it to be a place where people come and talk to God. And He answers them back. We'd say it this way. It's a place where God is welcome and where He's worshipped. But it's a place where God is walked with. He wanted it to be a place of communion and fellowship with God. I wonder if your life could be said to be that. Not just exercising religious practices, but walking with God. Hey, how's your prayer life? How's your Bible reading life? What is your life in relation to walking with God? God. So I see the design of the temple, but then I see the defiling of the temple. He says, this is everything God wanted it to be, but that's not what it is. He said, but ye have made it what? A den of thieves. There's much we could say about that, and there is, of course, a biblical context to this in the fact that the people that were uh, exercising and engaging in commerce and, and in commercial activities there were cheating people and were robbing the people of God. But I, I just want to think about it in terms of our lives. It made me think of John chapter 10. I don't know if you remember this, but in John chapter number 10, the Lord Jesus is talking about His ability to save and, and to transform men's lives. And He says this, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. He says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So the Lord Jesus' characterization of a thief and a thief's intent and desire is to steal and to kill and to destroy. He looks around at these people in the temple and he says, this is no longer a place of prayer. It has just become a den of thieves. I'll tell you what God wants to do to you or what the devil wants to do to your life and to mine. Three things. Number one, we see the pillaging of God's place. They came in and they wanted to steal from God. Now, I trust there wouldn't be anybody in here that would be willing to go as far as steal from God. But can I tell you this? When we don't render unto God the things that belong unto God, we don't render unto Him our life and our time and our love and our devotion, we might as well be stealing from God. He bought and paid for you. When you don't give yourself to Him, you are robbing Him of that which belongs to Him. Then I would even go a step further and say the devil's desire is to steal that which belongs to God away from him. And the quickest way he can do that is to take captive your life, your affection, your devotion, and your energies. We see the pillaging of God's place. But then number two, we see the perverting of God's place. He said it was supposed to be this, but you've taken it. and It's not what it was supposed to be now. He says it's a den of thieves. And it reminds me of the second thing that a thief does. What does he do? He, he, he's there to steal and then to what? To kill. Now, we uh, of course, it's, it's not entirely uncommon at all for uh, there to be uh, deaths and homicides whenever home burglaries and, and acts of crime take place. But I think in the Lord Jesus' context here, here's what he's saying. He's saying that the purpose of the thief is to come in and kill what God is desiring to do. Can I tell you, that's what the devil would like to do in your life. God wants to work in your life. Can I just say that again? God wants to work in your life. If you feel like he's not working the way that you wish he was, let me tell you, it's not because he don't want to. He is willing to. He desires to do so. But here's what the devil will do. He'll come along and he'll take. He's not, he can't create anything on his own. So he'll come along and take what God's doing in your life and he'll pervert it and he'll corrupt it and he'll defile it, and he'll snuff it out if he possibly can. 
part of the reason we have to guard so jealously the Word of God when it's given to us. Let me tell you something. Every time you hear a sermon preached, whether it's from me or anybody else, you've got to be on guard after you've heard that truth. The devil's, uh, the devil's scavenger birds are going to be hovering around over top of that, trying to come and snatch away that truth. Trying to come and trying to make it about, uh, about the preacher, trying to make it about you, trying to make it about someone else, trying to make it about any and everything that he can instead of your relationship with God. What does the devil try to do? Just like he does when the seed is planted. He comes along, tries to choke it out and stamp it out and rob it away. He's trying to kill the work of God. And he's trying to do that in your life as well. So we see it was the perverting of God's place. But then we see the polluting of it. He says this, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now think about it. This is supposed to be a place that is occupied with the holiest of people. But it had become nothing but a common den of thieves. Now, the immediate context of it was this, that the kind of crowd that was gathering around the temple in that day were not individuals that loved the Lord, not individuals that were there because they desired the things of God. Now, I'm not saying there were not some of those as well there, but it had become a drawing place for people that saw it as a commercial opportunity to try to to siphon off of the people of God some kind of commercial marketing success, some kind of money, some kind of commerce off of them. He says, you know, in doing that, they're polluting what God has sought to do. People don't want to come here because when they come here, it ain't about what God's doing in their life, but rather it's about what these individuals can get out of them. It had become an unsafe place. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in a den of thieves. I don't want to be in a place where men have no regard for the law of God or the law of men. I don't want to be in a place where men have no regard for common decency. But that's how the temple had become. That's why the Lord cleanses it. In other words, they had destroyed this beautiful thing that God had created. Let me tell you, the devil, here's what he wants to do. He can't drag you to hell if you've been saved. But he can sure enough make you a mess when you get to heaven. He can destroy all that God is trying to do in your life. He can destroy your marriage. He can destroy your children. He can destroy your testimony. He can destroy the godly friendship that you have in your life. Hey, don't be naive. Don't be that person. That person that winds up in a sermon illustration because they won't listen to the truth of the Word of God. Don't be that person that we have to say, hey, we told them, but they just wouldn't listen to what God says. Now look at their life. What a mess their life is. What a tragedy their life is. Right now is the moment for you to make your mind up that you're going to make the right decisions about I feel like I'm preaching at teenagers. Amen? Some of y'all need it. I'm just getting ready for camp. <laughs> we see the polluting of God's place. So this place had become thoroughly defiled and corrupt. It was a place that did not honor God and did not please God. And God was not joyous with. So what does the Lord Jesus do? Man, He shows up. Verse number 12, the Bible says this, Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold dove. Whenever He does this in the earlier part of His ministry, in John chapter number 2, the Bible tells us that He braided a cord uh, to scourge them with. I'm going to be honest with you, man. He just went in and tore the place all to pieces. He just threw everybody out. And you say, now preacher, that's extreme. Well, no, not when you look at, at what was at risk and not when you look at what the devil had done. It's not, it's not out of place at all. Uh, this was his house. Now, I don't know about you, but how would you feel if you got home from church tonight and there's a block party taking place and people dealing drugs and people getting into all kinds of wickedness in your front yard, hey, in your living room, and, and you just showed up and, and they're doing everything contrary to your heart and your desire? You'd be torn up too. You'd start, you, you'd be, you'd be weaving a, a cord to scourge them with. 
And so he shows up, man, he sees all this mess taking place, and he drives them out. And it's a reminder in our life that he has a desire to cleanse this temple the way that he cleansed that temple. What happened and how did that take place? Well, I just want to notice verse 12. The Bible says this, Jesus went in to the temple of God. Number one, there was an entrance that happened. Now, I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say, and I actually think this is a beautiful picture of what happens in the life of the believer. Think about two thoughts here with me. Number one, consider his perpetual presence in that place. You know, this was his house. It was his temple. In fact, when you go in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that once a year on the Day of Atonement, that the glory of God would fall on this place and, and would behold the blood that had been applied to the mercy seat. Uh, the, it's called the Shekinah glory of God. Would sit down on this place and observe and behold what had been done in the sacrifices that were given. Do you know what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us about Lord Jesus? It says this in verse 3, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying that Shekinah glory that fell, that was Jesus. That was a manifestation of what we would call a theophany or a Christophany. That was Him bestowing His presence on this place. Hey, this wasn't the first time He had been to the temple. He had been there the day it was consecrated. He was the glory that fell whenever Solomon prayed. He was the one that came and walked by and visited this place once a year and blessed it with His presence and His favor and blessed it with His, his, uh, his visitation. It was His house. He's the God of the temple. He's always there in a sense through His omnipotence or omnipresence rather. He is always in that place. And yet here, verse number 12, we find something interesting. Now, He's been there many times, but He ain't never been there for this reason. He's been there all the time, we could say, because He's everywhere. And yet here He's there in a distinct way. And it reminds me of our life. Listen, when you got born again, God took up residence in you through the person of the Holy Ghost. He is in you and with you and will be forever in you. The Spirit of God cannot be taken from any man. We are sealed under the day of redemption. Jesus is in our life through the person of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. He is indwelling our life. And yet here, what do we find? We find Him going into the place to do a special work of cleansing there. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. If you've been born again, He's in your life. But when He shows up, He's going to do some cleaning as well. You say, preacher, I've already been saved. Yeah, I understand you've been saved. Uh, but have you had a good spring cleaning in your life any time lately? Has He showed up with authority and driven out the things that displease God? I'm saying this, and I ain't talking about no Nazarene second blessing. I'm not talking about no church of God being filled with the Holy Ghost. I believe in a biblical being filled with the Holy Ghost. But I'm not talking about no tongue-tying and tongue-talking nonsense. But I'm talking about letting Him do a work in your life and letting Him take control, and letting Him have authority. That's what He did. He showed up and handled business. Has He done that in your life lately? I see His entrance, but then notice number two, there was an expulsion. There were some things that He kicked out of that place. What did He kick out? Well, there's three categories. Notice the first thing He did, He cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty big damper on commerce. We've learned commerce struggles when there ain't no people buying and selling. Uh, our government didn't learn this till the past two years, but apparently it's tough to have an economy when you don't have nobody buying and selling. They're just now, yeah, that's true. They're just now pretending like they learned that truth. 
It's amazing. We thought we could shut everything down, shut all business, and we, like that wouldn't affect anything, right? And uh, But the surest way to stop all that nonsense, really I think they already knew this, you want to kill an economy, if you want to stop it from happening, you just shut her down and it can't survive. Here the Lord Jesus has taught this biblical principle long before the Marxists ever picked it up and ran with it. He said, hey, you want to stop all this nonsense, you cut the customers out of it, and then there ain't going to be no commerce take place. In other words, we could say it this way. He removed the demand from that place. Why was this happening? Because there was folks that wanted to buy and folks that wanted to sell that were naturally drawn to this place because they could benefit from it. I'd say it this way. He expels from our life the sins that lure us, the things that we're naturally drawn to. Uh, listen, I, the market always wins out. Why were they here? They were here because they wanted what was there in a, in a commercial sense. They wanted to buy it. They had a desire that trumped their devotion for the Lord. And you know, in our life, there'll be things that we have a desire for, and if we're not careful, we'll let that desire trump our devotion towards the Lord. What happens when God cleanses the temple of this body? He takes those things that seek to lure us away from God, and He subjugates them, and He draws them out of our life. doesn't mean you won't have a desire to do wrong, but it does mean that that desire won't be permitted to dominate your life. I wonder if you're willing to let Him clean the things out that lure you away from the Lord. Then number two, He overthrew the tables of the money changer. Now you may be asking, preacher, what a strange thing. Why were there money changers in this place? Well, remember, this is all taking place during the time of Roman power. And Israel is a, is a province, is a vassal of Rome. And so the coin of the land was the, the Roman denarius. But the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that every single Hebrew was commanded once a year to go up and to pay their tithe or to pay their offering to the temple. And that offering was to be paid in a half shekel. And so they were not allowed to come and pay with a denarius. They had to get a shekel because the Word of God said they had to pay it in the coin, the denomination that was a half shekel. And so what they would do is they'd send out word that uh, it was about the time of year people were to come up and to pay that offering to the temple. And then these people would come and they would set up tables and they would be prepared to exchange the money for those Hebrew worshipers. Now you say, preacher, that's so sweet of them. I mean, just do that out of the goodness of their heart. You ain't read the fine print. <laughs> You've done signed to some agreements that you ain't paid no attention to. Because here's what they do. They'd say, yeah, we'll change your money, but we're going to take a little bit of it from you. And that's always how it is, isn't it? Uh, there's always that, that processing fee, that 3%. I don't know why it costs 3% more to buy something with a credit card. Amen. It takes just as long to swap it as a debit card. But for some reason, they get 3% from you. So they would take it and they, they would put a processing fee on it. They'd say, well, we'll exchange it. We're going to take a little bit of what belongs to God and, and keep it unto ourselves. In other words, he was driving out the things that rob us in our life, that take things that belong to God, that are God's property and God's possession and would claim it unto itself. You know, there are things in our life that they even in of themselves, they may not be, may not be abjectly wrong. They may not be in, inherently wrong, but they're taking our heart away from God. They're taking our time away from God. They're shifting our focus away from God. Can I tell you this? When God shows up, when the Lord shows up in your life to do a cleansing work, all those things that are competing for His attention and His place are going to be cleared out of our life. It ought to be that Jesus is in first place and there is no second place. That He and He alone, that He is preeminent above all and everything. So He overthrew the tables of the money changers. Then the Bible says this, He threw out the seats of them that sold doves. 
That's interesting. In the Old Testament, and time would fail us to explain it as exhaustively as we wish we could, but in the Old Testament, there were different forms of sacrifices that could be given. You could give a, a lamb. You could give a goat in some circumstances. You could give a bullock, which was a, uh, like a large cow. You could give uh, something, a heifer, anything like that. Uh, there were several things that could be given. But the Bible gives provision that the poorest of the poor, if they couldn't afford a bullock, and if they couldn't afford a sheep, and if they couldn't afford a goat, they could offer a turtle dove. Now, John tells us in his account that when the Lord Jesus drove them out, he drove out them that sold all of these things. It's interesting that Matthew only mentions the doves, and I think there's probably some reasons for that, but uh, suffice it to say, here was the process. Somebody would be getting ready to go down to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. Now, I have never walked an ox all the way from Tennessee to Jerusalem, but I'd imagine it's not easy to do. And so rather than taking and leading their sacrifice as they were supposed to do all the way to Jerusalem, here's what they'd do. They'd take a little coin in their pocket. Whenever they'd get ready to do the sacrifice, they'd stop over at Oxen for Us and they would uh, pick out the one that they liked and they'd lay the cash on the barrel head. Easy peasy, right? I mean, it was no trouble at all. In fact, it had done this. It had taken all the meaningful effort out of the process of giving a sacrifice in the first place. All they had to do was just show up, put their money down, and they were a good religious person. Man, sounds like a lot of churches today, don't it? Just show up, put your money down, and we'll say you're a good Christian. That's all it takes. And so they would go and they'd show up. Now, again, it's interesting that, that Matthew speaks of it and he, he talks about those that sold doves. You know, in the, uh, in the Bible, the dove is, is forever and always going to be joined together with the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. It's also interesting when you think about the dove being the offering of poor folks. And the reason for that was because uh, you couldn't get an oxen if you had no money to get it without robbing it from someone. You couldn't get a sheep if you had no money to get it without robbing it from someone. But a poor person could go out and could try to catch and trap a turtle dove, try to set snares, and maybe even try to breed them themselves so that they could give a sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, all these had to do with your personal investment, your personal meaningful engagement in the worship of God. But they had robbed all of that and just made it a, a silly, cold, meaningless, transactional affair. And in doing so, who had they grieved? They had grieved the Holy Ghost, the very dove of God. And I'd say it this way. Hey, he gets rid of the things in our life that dull us, that take that ministry and work of the Holy Ghost and make it unnecessary in our lives because we're not going to listen to the Holy Ghost as He leads us anyway. We have done subcontracted out this thing of religion to the commercial peddlers and we're not interested in how God feels about our life anymore. All we're interested in now is that we go through the motions and carry out the processes. Let me tell you something. As wicked as something is that draws you away from the Lord out in the open, as wicked as something is that drags you down the road and throws you in the ditch of sin, is the very thing that lets you be in the depths and dregs of sin and sit in a church pew the whole time. Uh, God help us that we could be that far from God in our heart though we ride a pew every single week. Hey, listen, who was farther away from the Father, the Son in the far country or the one sitting over in the living room? They both were far from God. You ain't got to be in the far country to be far at heart. You can be far away. And so these were things that dulled them, that made their their worship something that was cheap and hollow and transactional and meaningless. And in our life, when we let sin in our life, chances are we have too much pride to just get out altogether. We'll keep going to church. It just won't mean anything to us anymore. 
We'll use excuses and, and, and reasons why it's okay. And we will grow satisfied with the dead, dull status quo of carrying out the processes of religion without there being any real meaningful passion in it. You say, preacher, what happens when God gets a hold of a man? He's over and done and not satisfied anymore with dead religion. It's got to be the real thing or he's not interested in it anymore. When God gets a hold of your heart, it won't just be about going through the motion, being able to show the receipt of where you purchased the dove and gave the sacrifice. It'll be about you worshiping God in sincerity and in truth. So there was an expulsion that takes place. Then notice verse 14. I'll notice this and be done tonight very briefly. The Bible says this, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, this must tore them all to pieces, the folks that he had just driven out. I mean, this was prime commercial real estate. Now he's just using it to heal a bunch of lame and blind people. But here's what happened. The Lord Jesus, he reclaimed his house for the purpose that he had originally designed it for. So we see the corrupting of the temple and the cleansing of the temple. But then we see the claiming of the temple. You know, Jesus would spend the next five days leading up to Calvary ministering here in the temple. He would make it his base of operations during that Passion Week. And it's interesting to note, before he could do any of this work there, he first had to cleanse out these things from this place. And it's a reminder to me, man, if we want Him to work in our life, we've got to let Him cleanse our life. In fact, I'd say two things. Number one, if we want Him to touch our hurts, we must allow Him to cleanse our life. What happened? The blind and the lame, terrible customers these folks were. But listen, they were good, good broken people that God could save and transform and change. Uh, listen, he ain't interested in who he can get the most out of. He's interested in who he can put the most into. And he brings these people in and allows them to come into this place. And what happens? He begins to heal them. He begins to minister in that place. There's a great many of us that we want God to minister this all-glorifying, supernatural, the pass of all understanding, grace, and mercy, and comfort, and hope. But we won't let Him cleanse our life first. We say, now, Lord Jesus, You come on in and do a work in my life. And I'm going to be honest with you. He looks at it and He says, I'm unwilling to walk into that pigsty. Not unless You're going to let me clean it up first. Now, He'll do the cleaning, but You're going to have to be willing to let Him. Let me tell you something. You're not going to get Jesus to wallow in filth. You're not going to get him to. It's not his nature to do so. Now, he ain't afraid of a mess. He drove him out of the temple. He saved you. He ain't afraid of a mess. But you're going to have to be willing to let him clean it. You're not going to keep your life a mess and expect him to walk and, and live and wallow in it just like your flesh is comfortable doing. But the moment that it was cleansed, here's what the Lord said. Now that we got all these peddlers and, and hucksters out of here, now we got a place where we can do a work. We want him to touch our hearts. We're going to have to allow him cleanse the temple. And you know, the Bible says this in, in Luke's account, verse number uh, chapter number 19, Luke's account, that after he did this, he, in fact, let me just read it. It's only just three verses like our text. It says, He went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And then it says this, verse 47, And he taught daily in the temple. He taught daily in the temple. So not only did he minister healing there, but he ministered teaching there. And it's a reminder in our lives, if we don't want him to touch our hearts, number one, we've got to let him cleanse our temple. But number two, if we want him to teach our hearts, we've got to let him cleanse the temple of our life. We want to grow. We want to develop. We want to know more of him. Uh, it's not going to happen with a dirty life. We're going to have to let him come in and cleanse our life if we want to learn more of him. 
No, tell them the things that they learn, and you can read some of them in the Gospel accounts. Things that He revealed about Himself. Things He talks about. The parables, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. All kinds of things over the next few days. But none of that teaching could happen when He was having to compete with the carnival barkers and cornerside salesmen of that place. He said, I'll not strive. I'll not shout above them till we get them out of here. I can't teach nothing. Listen, a great many of us in our life, we want to hear His voice, but we can't hear over the din and noise and ruckus of the sin in our life. All we hear is the world just screaming in our ear all the time. Then we wonder why we can't hear from God. All we hear is our flesh leading us around, talking to us, telling us where to go and what to do. And we're just like good, obedient little lemmings following everything our flesh says. Then we wonder why we can't hear from God. We've got to be willing to let Him cleanse our life. But if we'll do that, hey, He'll start speaking to us. He'll start growing us. So I wonder if your life, if your life has been cleansed by Him. And he said, well, preacher, I've been born again. I've been saved. Man, praise the Lord. Positionally, you are clean in Jesus Christ. But I wonder if practically you've been clean. I, you say, well, preacher, He lives in my life. Yeah, I understand He's there in a sense. He was there before He ever showed up on this day. But has He showed up the way He showed up on this day? Has He showed up that way in your life? Have you uh, given to Him the scourge of the Word of God to scourge out the unclean things in your life? Have you given Him the authority to instruct and to direct and to remake your life? You've not done that. Don't be surprised when He can't do a work in your life. But if you're willing to let Him do it, you'll be amazed what He can do. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to the piano, I want to give you the opportunity to meet with the Lord. Now, it could be any of the things I've spoken about tonight, or it could be none of the things might be that God dealt with you about something. The Holy Ghost took the Word of God and applied it in some way that might have been nowhere even near what I was preaching on. Or it might have been a very thing that I spoke of. might have been as we ran across this point or that point that the Holy Ghost of God reached out and squeezed your heart and said, you know, that's you. That's your life. If God has dealt with you about something, don't put Him off. Don't dismiss Him. Don't disregard or ignore Him. Instead, respond to Him. Come down and meet Him in this altar. If you won't let Him do the work, He won't do the work. But if you'll let Him do it, you'll be amazed what He'll do. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name as a...